Hi, I'm Mark Rotterman, and this is Front Row. Coming up, is President Biden losing ground with independence? The North Carolina House passes their budget with bipartisan support, and the redistricting process begins next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, political analyst Joe Stewart, David Miltenberg, editor of Business North Carolina Magazine, and Nelson Dollar, the senior advisor to North Carolina Speaker of the House. Mitch, let's begin with President Biden's numbers with independence. Yeah, a recent average of seven national polls shows President Biden at historic lows in terms of approval at this point in the presidency, and largely that's attributable to his problems with independence. A recent morning consult Politico polling uh, showed that uh, because of rising COVID cases, rising inflation and other factors, the president is looking bad among independents. 44% approval, 49% disapproval. His net approval has dropped 18 points since April. It's been a slow but consistent decline. If you look at some of the individual factors on the uh, economy, the disapproval is 51% among independents. That's up nine points since the end of June. Even on the pandemic, he's at 43% disapproval. That's up 13 points in just a matter of a couple of months. The worst numbers he's seen since he's taken office. But to put it in perspective, he's still doing better among independents than Donald Trump was at this point in the presidency. Joe, are we beginning to see a trend, my friend? Yeah, I think we are. Presidents have a tendency to be hostage to situations, some of which they have no control over. It's just the nature of being president of the United States, I guess. To some extent, the president could do more, perhaps, to stem the tide of the resurgence of COVID-19. Perhaps he could do more to try to beat back inflation and keep prices down. He could do those things, but if those are are naturally occurring in the uh, political and economic environment of the country, voters are gonna hold him accountable. He is the leader of the country and that's how people perceive the office of the president. You are ultimately responsible for what's going on in the country and should be doing something to make the things that are bad better for the voters. We'll see if this trend continues, if the uh, uncertainty of the COVID resurgence continues to impact markets, if people are concerned that their own personal financial well-being is in doubt somehow because of the factors that are taking place relative to the pandemic, I think they will continue to hold President Biden accountable. Nelson, your take on these numbers? Well, you have chaos at the border, gas and food prices on the rise, nothing's getting done in Washington. Speaker Pelosi is now holding the president's infrastructure bill hostage for another $3.5 trillion in additional spending. And Biden looks extremely uh, weak on the foreign policy front. He's having to beg the Taliban not to overrun the U.S. embassy. And he's also having uh, to go hat in hand to OPEC to ask them to lower oil prices when he should be proactive for oil. For example, we have shale oil that is cleaner burning and employs Americans. So there's some proactive things that he should be doing. I think, you know, to Mitch's point and, and Joe's point, 
Biden's personality is certainly more appealing to independents than Trump's, but not Biden's policies. Your thoughts, Dave? Well, as a nonpartisan, I guess I'm hearing a lot of optimism from the Republicans, as Nelson was suggesting, but also this concern that, that President Trump may come in in a very ham-handed way and drive away some independent support that otherwise might be swaying towards the, uh, 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 towards the Republicans. Yeah. Will this be a referendum, Joe, on Trump or Biden in the midterms? Well, I think definitely it's a referendum on the president. I mean, midterms, first midterms in particular, always do tend to be a referendum on the president. Uh, historically, it goes against the party in control of the White House. That's been true, Democrat or Republican, uh, irrespective of which of the two parties controls the White House. I think by all standards, we can assume that 22 will be a good year for Republicans, generally speaking. It may be a much better year in 22 than it is likely to be at this point if the president's popularity continues to decline or if we do have other significant issues that emerge where people feel the president's not doing the best job to address those concerns. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to the economy, isn't it? It usually does. I mean, there may be some other factors, including COVID and how it affects the economy, but it is going to be, to some extent, a, a referendum on President Biden. To Dave's point, though, if President Trump, former President Trump gets in and does something that really makes independents mad, that could be a factor. Yeah, if he becomes the issue. Okay, I want to move on to the state budget. We've got a budget from the House. We do. This week, the House passed a bipartisan $25.7 billion spending plan for working families in North Carolina. It includes raises and bonuses for state workers, teachers, faculty, and state retirees, wage and bonus increases uh, for those who serve the elderly and the needy uh, and the disabled in North Carolina, a record number there, over $3 billion in family and business tax cuts, and over $5 billion in federal funding for pandemic response. And that includes relief that affects businesses, individuals, uh, $200 million, for example, for workforce housing, funds for food banks, clinics, clinics, local schools, and a range of services for those who are most at risk. And also, this will be the largest capital and infrastructure investment in the state's history and will impact communities all across the state, really for decades to come, over $12 billion in infrastructure investments. Uh, truly, this is a budget for working families. What struck you about this budget? Well, it is a, a, a very comprehensive budget. There's a lot to it. We, of course, need to consider this outside of a vacuum. There's a House budget. There was a plan that Governor Cooper put forward. There's a Senate budget. The House and Senate have the, same, have the same bottom line numbers in the general fund, which is important, but they have some different priorities. They have some different policy issues. Uh, on the tax cut issue, both sides would cut taxes. The Senate wants to be a little more aggressive in moving forward with this. Both have pay raises for employees. The House wants to be more aggressive on that front. So it'll be interesting to see where they come together when they come to negotiations. Joe. One of the things that I found interesting, there's a provision in the House budget relative to the governor's authority in a declared state of emergency now requiring a consensus among the Council of State, the 10 statewide elective executive branch offices. I think we've gone through COVID with some incredible stress and strain emerging between the legislative and executive branch. Uh, some concern on the part of legislators that the governor has too much authority to take action in these types of situations. Historically, the times that we've needed the governor to have this power was when there 
it was a natural disaster, not as much division between branches of government when we're dealing with a hurricane than when we're dealing with issues like COVID where there's a lot of public policy. Uh, Democrats on the House side asked for that to be taken out and handled separately, but it was contained in the budget. We'll see if it's in the final provision. Will the governor veto this budget, you think, or do you think he'll work with both sides, Berger and Moore? Well, the governor did have very favorable things to say about the House version of the budget, saying it was better than the Senate version, which is maybe as much praise as a Democratic governor can give to a Republican-controlled General Assembly-produced budget. But at this point, I'm not sure what the governor would base a veto on. It's a lot of the things that he asked for. Clearly, the governor has been involved in the discussion with the House and Senate by his, his staff's own acknowledgement. So well, it, there, it, is there a supermajority to override a veto, you think? Well, both the Senate and the House passed their versions with majorities sufficient to override a veto, assuming those Democrats would retain their support for a, a conference report budget that, in effect, the reconciled version between the House and Senate. But at this point, it looks pretty favorable, and that would definitely enter into the governor's thinking about a veto. Well, is Cooper a lame duck? Um, I, I wouldn't be the right person to ask that. I am impressed, though, that I talked to a pretty influential educator this week who's been very progressive in terms of wanting higher pay raises, and she said, we're just tired. We want to accept this uh, pay raise. It's, it sounds like uh, uh, plenty of... Uh, uh, you know, it's time to uh, compromise, and I, I think he's going to get a lot time of pressure Time to work on things that. out, Nelson? Well, I think that what you'll see next is starting next week, you'll see the House and the Senate uh, negotiators get together. I think that they want to move expeditiously to come to a conference process, and the governor and the governor's people will be involved in that process. What's the timing on this? Well, I think it could take, I mean, you know, these things can always drag out, but I think it'll be a matter of weeks, uh, pulling all of the pieces together between the two chambers and certainly including uh, the governor's recommendations. Mitch, wrap this up in about 30. Yeah, you asked about the timing, and I think one of the reasons that uh, the timing is probably a little bit indeterminate is we're already into the new budget year, and lawmakers are already working on some other issues, including our very next topic. They've got to be in town for redistricting anyway, so there's no big incentive for them to go home and end the session. They can keep working on the budget. Joe, redistricting came to the forefront this week. Boy, it's so exciting. The decennial <laughs> census comes to the state, and we got to redraw all the maps. Although, That's why I gave it to you. Well, in, <laughs> in recent history, we've had to redraw the maps more often than every 10 years as a result of litigation that arises from this. But we now have the census data. It arrived in North Carolina on Thursday of this week, uh, showing what we all knew, significant growth in the state. Interestingly enough, that this is the basis that legislators must use to draw these maps. On the state legislative district side, the 50 Senate districts and the 120 House districts, there's a little more latitude. They have a plus or minus 5% in terms of the total population contained in these districts. It gives them a little more wiggle room to try to draw districts that make sense. Congressional districts, there's a little finer requirement in terms of the total population one to the other. W what do we know? Well, the Republicans control the legislature, so they control redistricting. The House and Senate committees have already started to meet. They promulgated the criteria that they're going to use for this, including, they say, they will not use issues of race, they will not use partisan identity, and they will not use past voting performance as a basis to draw any of these districts. Now, the thing that's a challenge for this process is, as we said before, it's all likely to end up in litigation, so the process has to be surgical. Everything that the Republican leadership says or does relative to redistricting could end up in a lawsuit as the other side tries to contend they were fixing the books, as it were, to try to get districts that favor Republicans. It, it is the best time of year if you're an election law lawyer because you're going to make a lot of money and your kids are going to have a great Christmas because it's all going to end up in litigation. Speaking of lawyers, Eric Holder's watching this very carefully, isn't he? 
Well, they, he is, and and um, former I, uh, AG, former AG for for the Obama administration, and and I and I think that uh, there's been a lot of disingenuous things that have been said. But you know, in North Carolina, we have one of the most structured sets of election or redistricting parameters of anywhere in the country, and that's because of, as Joe was alluding to, 35 years of state and U.S. Supreme Court decisions that guide the redistricting process. So it is not a random process. And I think that what the bipartisan joint committee did this week, setting forth uh, a, rules. A, an open set of rules that everybody can see, that everybody had a voice in, uh, is, it's critically important. I think the other thing, and this gets back to Holder, is nationally people are moving to the South and West, and that has tended to favor red states in terms of picking up congressional seats. And really, you know, what the Democrats want to do is they want this Washington takeover of the election process. They want bureaucrats in D.C. Does that still have legs, you think, up there in D.C.? Well, they still... They're bring it, it back up, I hear. They could bring it back up. It all um, uh, rests on uh, cloture and keeping the filibuster rule in place to make sure that Washington bureaucrats don't dictate the elections that should be reserved to the people elected in the various states. Mitch, how high are the stakes? Well, they are high. I mean, of course, you're dealing with control of the General Assembly and also an impact on control of the House of Representatives. To me, the most interesting part of this is the 2019 redistricting process took place in the most open way possible. Everything was live streamed. Nothing could happen without anyone being able to see it. That was done because of a court order. And now the General Assembly has decided we're going to do that on our own. We're going to choose to do that. The other interesting thing to Quickly. note about this that's important is massive population changes that are going to affect these districts. Dave, wrap this up in about 20 seconds. Final well, thoughts, we're please. We're going adding a 14th congressman. Uh, so I would think we have to be 9586 or pretty 77 in terms of a very purple state. And it seemed like the common sense would suggest that's where we need to end up to be fair. Okay, I'm going to come right back to you. Let's talk about the Delta virus, its impact on a economy well, potentially. Mark, Mark, I think uh, there's this great frustration among uh, businesses who had hoped that the Labor Day uh, would be, Mark, a return to normalcy, but instead we're seeing major employers like Wells Fargo pushing back their uh, return to work till October. Um, we're seeing our hospitals seeing big inflows of uh, COVID-19 patients, which is very disappointing, but they haven't stopped uh, doing elective surgeries, which is a good sign because that's where ultimately they pay their bills. Um, I think uh, North Carolina is also seeing what the uh, state treasurer said at the, uh, Dale Falwell said at the Council of State last uh, week, an employment crisis. So many businesses are struggling to find workers, which is something we never would have expected before uh, this, uh, at the outset of this pandemic. Um, and that means that workers have more leverage than any time in my life, which is great if you're a worker, not so great if you're an employer. So it's a very uh, interesting uh, a mixed bag, but the Governor Cooper said he thought this was going to work itself out uh, in September when the federal unemployment compensation uh, rolls off. So we will see. I think also on, in terms of big uh, key mega trend here is that CEOs want their people back in the office despite a lot of the hype about work from home and that it, it will help uh, improve corporate cultures, it'll rev growth, it'll also uh, avert maybe a looming mental health crisis that a lot of people see is happening because of this isolation that we're having. So okay. I think it's a, it's a really fascinating time. 
Mitch, businesses abhor the, the uncertainty, don't they? Oh, they definitely do. I, mean, I think a lot of people, if you had said back at the beginning of this pandemic that we'd still be dealing with it in late August of 2021, businesses would have said, okay, that's terrible, but at least we know where we're going. But we've been dealing with uncertainty now for months and months, and with this Delta variant causing renewed concerns among many, that has caused people to rethink plans yet once again. Joe. You know, one of the dynamics, Dave pointed to this, I mean, employers want their people back in the physical locations. One large building management company announced this week a survey they had done showed occupancy in office buildings was only at about 35% currently. People still primarily working from home or working remotely. Interestingly enough, in every economic dynamic, there are winners and losers. And in this, it would seem uh, as though people with commercial real estate are going to suffer. But the company WeWorks that had a failed IPO back in 2019, right. a number of buildings across the country just was overstated in terms of its value. It appears to be coming back online with a potential form of IPO this year, but it is going to be the alternative for homebound workers who get sick of that after a while and want to go work in an office somewhere, maybe not in the office that their employer owns. So we may see some sort of enterprising way to bring workers back to a central location that accommodates this now more common work from home dynamic. Is mixed messaging from the administration contributing to this? It absolutely is. Uh, the, the government's policy has been counterproductive. They keep moving back and forth. The science keeps changing. So it's time for the FDA to immediately approve the vaccine for general use and for governments really at all levels uh, uh, to folk and businesses and institutions to focus solely on convincing people to get the shot. The, the, the cure to this, the, the way to lower these waves and to, to eventually end the pandemic is vaccination. It's not lockdowns. It's not uh, You think we're going to see more lockdowns, more mandates coming out of the Biden administration to CDC? Well, you could have that. And that is actually hurting the, the focus, which needs to be on vaccination. Certainly, the General Assembly does not support uh, mandates. Okay, let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. The Reverend William Barber was back in court this week, this time at the North Carolina Court of Appeals. You'll know him as a left of center activist, he used to be the head of the state NAACP and a uh, leader of the National Poor People's Campaign. He's challenging a 2017 court case in which he was he was charged with trespass because of a protest at the General Assembly. There was a lot of noise going on. The people who were with the Reverend Barber were blocking hallways and stopping the, the, the flow of business in the area. Barber's lawyer is claiming that uh, the, the arrest and conviction violated his First Amendment rights. He's also challenging the conviction on a technicality of how the case got to Superior Court in the first time in the first place. One of the interesting pieces about this, one of the judges who will be ruling on the Court of Appeals is Lucy Inman, who is a likely candidate for Supreme Court next year. No politics involved. Joe? Well, I guess it was inevitable. Cybercrime has now met cryptocurrency. The site Poly Network, which is a blockchain site, had $600 million in cryptocurrency stolen in a virtual heist. I'm not sure if you have to wear a bandana if you're sitting in your mother's basement while you're hacking into a computer. But this is the first time we've seen this new emerging dynamic in our economy of cryptocurrency seemingly less secure in the same way there used to be concerns about conventional terrestrial-based banks. Okay, underreported, Dave. I picked that North Carolina has among the highest cost, least patient-friendly health care systems in the nation. Now, this has been reported repeatedly in surveys over the year. A wallet hub did a very uh, quantitative study that came out last week that Who showed... Who is WalletHub? WalletHub is a research uh, firm 
that studies a lot of different industries and they use a very quantitative approach. So it wasn't subjective. And this is an issue for all of us. It's not pointing at the hospitals and the doctors. Everybody has a role. But we came in 47th overall, 49th in costs. What do you think about that, Joe? Well, it's certainly a challenge I think uh, we face. There have been a lot of disruptions in the healthcare systems in this state since the time of uh, the Affordable Care Act where we saw a significant shift in the way that medical and uh, health-related services are provided. But we've got to do something in this state to bring our standards up and make sure people are getting the best quality, affordable care, and that there are lots of options for them to receive that care through. Nelson, under reported, please. The end of more. Uh, over the past few centuries, every economic system has been based on growth, with the major distinction being who actually decides how the fruits of increasing growth are distributed. And that is fundamentally changing. So falling birth rates globally mean an end to consumption-led growth in every developed country over the next two decades. We will have to devise new economic theories and systems to deal with the reality of less rather than more growth. Countries like Germany, China, Russia, Italy will have to find solutions this decade. Uh, the U.S., because of the millennial generation, we have more time to adjust than other countries. Uh, but we are making mistakes now by running up debt uh, that someone will have to pay for in the out years. And we're not necessarily going to have those wage earners out there and those consumers out there to generate that, that economy. Globally, aging will be the central issue of the coming decades. Well, the GOP, about 19 senators, voted for that $1.2 trillion spending bill, infrastructure bill. Is the GOP still the party of growth? Well, I think the GOP was wanting to get on the right side of infrastructure. That's popular. But they do need to look at how many trillions of dollars, another $3.5 trillion that the uh, Democrats and the, the president want to put into the economy. You can't continue to flood the economy with trillions of dollars and not expect that to, to blow up inflation. Plus, are we have looking the at a bubble? I think you are potentially looking at a bubble, and particularly for when the bill comes due, right now they're looking at um, doubling uh, the, uh, the size of the federal debt, getting well over $45 trillion in the out years. That's going to be very difficult for generations down the road to pay for when those okay. generations of workers are smaller. Let's go to lightning round, Mitch. Who's up and who's down this week? My who's up? Dale Earnhardt Jr., the famous race car driver, making a legislative appearance. He had the rare opportunity to speak on the House floor. House Speaker Tim Moore gave him a copy of his number three license plate, because you'll remember his dad was number three on the NASCAR track. Uh, one of the reasons he was there, of course, was the House budget had about $50 million that dealt with motorsports issues. My who's down, uh, or what's down actually, local efforts to regulate short-term rentals like Airbnb. There was a regulatory reform bill that got through the House that had some uh, provisions that would limit local governments trying to do this. Uh, there was an amendment to take that piece out, but on a voice vote, they said, no, we don't want local governments blocking this. Joe? Nelson, does this mean that the speaker is no longer third in succession to the governor? Dale Earnhardt Jr. is uh -huh. third in succession to the governor? Uh, no, the speaker's still third. <laughs> well, who's up? Litigation against allegation frauds, uh, Dominion voting system uh, leveled a $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox News, has now similarly sued Newsmax and One America News for what they claim is the sullying of their reputation uh, in allegations of election fraud from the 2020 president. Does it have legs? Uh, we'll see. I think it's going to be very hard to prove this, uh, but it's a very interesting dynamic. We'll see if other voting system companies express similar concerns about the 
way that their systems are referred to when there's a dispute over the result in the election. Uh, down, perhaps, the rallying cry of defund the police among certain uh, elements within the Democratic Party, two amendments uh, to the uh, uh, infrastructure bill, to uh, anti-defund the police sort of referendum against uh, federal distribution of money, and even uh, Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota to bring recognition to the police and okay. first responders from January 1st uh, insurrection. Dave, quickly, who's up and who's down I this week? I up is uh, the increasing diversification in the uh, of, of North Carolina's business community, starting startup entrepreneurship and the boardrooms of the biggest companies. Okay. Uh, the NC Idea Group is showing a lot of energy in this area, and the uh, federal governments are requiring more diversification, and it's happening. Uh, it's underreported story. As far as down, don't mean be a downer, but uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction Catherine Truitt told the NC Chamber this week that two-thirds of North Carolina eighth graders lack prof basic proficiency in reading and math before the pandemic. And we're hearing that the test scores during the pandemic obviously have uh, gone down significantly. Great catch. Who's up and who's down this week? Uh, drug cartels are experiencing a windfall of some $6 billion annually from smuggling, smuggling illegal immigrants into the United States. Over 1 billion people have attempted to cross okay. the border illegally Quickly. since Biden took office. Who's down? The Beijing Winter Olympics, Tokyo Games suffered a severe decline in uh, uh, viewership. The Olympics in China may do worse with okay. boycotts for being the... the uh... Headline next week. Now the real work on a budget deal begins. Headline next week. And all eyes on the budget are key, and the Republicans hold the Democrats to sustain a veto override. Headline next week. State is going to refinance hundreds of millions of dollars at uh, interest rate of 0.70. Headline next week. Congress bogs down in Washington swamp. Do they pass the $3.5 trillion bill? Quickly. They may sometime later this fall, but, you know, you have Manchin and other senators who are concerned. Okay, great job, gents. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the Lightning Round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.